0: Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came.com. You can also email us at Two Guys Dark Tower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll start our coverage of Book Five of The Dark Tower, Wolves of the Calla, with the prologue in Part 1, Chapters 1-3. One Let's start the show! After a final argument
1: by King that summarizes Books 1-4, through four, along with some potentially new information, the book begins with a prologue that has no Roland and no Quartet, but instead a group of farmers who are worried about the titular wolves who will come to their town and steal their children, returning them Runt. Meanwhile, our Quartet continues along the beam toward the tower. One night, Jake, Eddie, and Oi experience toadash as their consciousnesses are transported back to New York City the day that Jake found the rose. There, they witness some interesting events at the Manhattan Restaurant of the Mind involving a character from book two. Finally, Roland witnesses another disturbing personality manifest itself within Susanna, Mia, that might have implications on the child she is carrying.
0: Greetings, constant listeners! Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels:
1: Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cadet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at Patreon.com/slash/two-guys-darktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. Jay, we're in book five, and King has a lot of setting up to do in this book. It seems like we've got basically four chapters, and each of the four chapters to start this book leads us in a different direction with focusing on a different set of characters. So it's a little bit choppy here at first, but it does seem like we're setting up for a longish book. I think it's over 700 pages, this one. And so I'm sure they're all going to coalesce at some point, but as of yet, they have not.
0: Yeah, it feels very table setting-ish at this point.
1: And as we like to do with our new books, let's talk a little bit about the publication history and where this fits into the larger Dark Tower works and Stephen King's entire history. So what's interesting between book four and book five is that Stephen King was hit by a minivan on June 19th in 1999 And that was a potentially career-ending, if not life-ending, accident. I know when that happened, I know I was shocked to hear the news and there were some touch-and-go pieces there. King spent a lot of time in the hospital and it seemed very precarious. Fortunately, he pulled through. There was concerns that he might not write again. I know he had a lot of back pain and and leg pains and that he wasn't sure if he could sit down at a desk and write anymore. And we didn't know if he was going to retire. So there's a lot going on there. And it really impacted his work going on after this. And we'll talk a little bit about other books that were written at this point in time. But On Writing, which is his autobiography slash writing manual, came out in 2000, just after the accident. And he spends a good portion of that book talking about the accident and the impact it had on him.
0: That's one of my favorite Stephen King books, actually, even though it's totally nonfiction and very different from anything he's done. It's such a great book.
1: It is a great book. My wife actually taught that in one of her college classes once, and she's not even a big Stephen King band, but she loved the book so much, both for the, it was a class on biography and autobiography, and she loved that aspect of it, as well as, since this was a class for writers, teaching them how to write, because King has some great tips in there. I still am very wary of adverbs to this day because of Stephen King. Me (laughs) too.
0: And every time I hear King or read King use an adverb, I go, ah. Uh. <laughs>
1: Practice what you preach, Sir King. <laughs> Two years after that accident, King began writing Wolves of the Cala in July of 2001. And the prologue was actually published on his website in August of 2001 to give people a taste, George R. R. Martin style, of of what's to come. King finished the book in early December of 2001, so he didn't spend more than five or six months working on this book and getting it done. An excerpt from this book called Tale of Grey Dick was published in McSweeney's Mammoth Treasury of Thrilling Tales, and I know for a fact that I read that book because I was a big McSweeney's fan at the time, and I believe Michael Shaban was the editor of that book. I have no recollection of reading Tale of Grey Dick, and I don't know if I would have if I just skipped it over or if I read it and don't remember it. But when we get to that section, I think it's about halfway through this book. I'll have to see if any of it comes back to me. I don't know if you remembered reading that or not,
0: Jay. Not only do I not have any awareness of this McSweeney publication, I don't remember that from the book when I read this the first time. So, All right. It'll all be new to us together. I'm basically treating this book and I think the rest of the series as though it might as well be my first time through. I've read these books one time many years ago, and I've read them as fast as they were published, which was pretty quick. Yeah. And then I never touched them again until now. And that's
1: over 12 years ago now, I think. I think yeah. the last one was published in 2005, I think, or late 2004 or so. In November of 2003 was the first publication of this book. And as he's done with the other ones, first it was published by Grant and then by his regular publisher, Scribner in this case. What else was happening at the time? 1999, Hearts in Atlantis and The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon were both published. Hearts in Atlantis are short stories and novellas, and I believe at least one, if not two of them, are Dark Tower adjacent. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, two of them definitely are. Yeah. 2000, the
1: aforementioned on writing, and his e-book publication of The Plant, which I remember spending a dollar online in 2000 for... The beginning is
0: part of that, and it never, ever finished it. Got to respect King for standing by his word, though, or for holding strong, I guess. I didn't sell enough, so you're
1: not getting the rest of this story. All right, buddy, thanks. Get a Kickstarter going and bring that back. 2001, Dreamcatcher and Black House. I have vague recollections of Dreamcatcher and none of Black House. And then 2002, Everything's Eventual, which was a... Collection of short stories and from a Buick Eight in 2002, and from a Buick Eight, I remember thinking King has gone to the well way too many times here. It's a car, it's Cthulhu, and it's not a very good book.
0: I would agree with all those things, but I think that that one is also technically Dark Tower related. I
1: would say I'll go back and read it sometime to see, but
0: but don't don't
1: bother. So the other thing I wanted to point out about this book is that the illustrator is Bernie Wrightson, who is a very famous comic book artist, mostly known for Swamp Thing, and he did an excellent adaptation of Frankenstein, which if you have an opportunity to find that, check it out. He's also worked with Stephen King before illustrating the Creepshow graphic novel, as well as Cycle of the Werewolf, which became the basis for... Silver Bullet, my wife's favorite Stephen King movie. <laughs> Crazy Gary Busey's in that. Yeah, And then in the republication of The Stand, Bernie Wrightson did uh, new illustrations for that when the uncut extended version of that came out in 1999. He also did the TV Guide cover for the Shining miniseries that came out with our good friend Stephen Weber from Wings. Bernie Wrightson just passed away last late last year uh, he's got a very unique style. We, I think in this section, we might only see one of his illustrations. He's well known for his horror stuff, and I'm looking forward to yeah. seeing the rest of his illustrations.
0: His illustrations in the reissue of The Stand still haunt me, especially the drawings of the dead with their swollen inner tube necks. Yeah. I can still clearly picture those images, and I read that book the first time when it came out and or just months after it was published in in like 1991 the fall of 91 i don't need to look in the book to remember how eerie and gross and harrowing the those images were bernie writes in a true talent
1: go check out his other works if you can i highly recommend uh his swamp thing stuff and as i said that frankenstein graphic novel is great i love creep show i read that i had that graphic novel and i read that i can't tell you how many times and I, that movie was on HBO when I was a kid, and so I think I caught the Creepshow movie dozens of times. As You I, mean
0: when Stephen King turned into a plant and then shot himself? It was awesome, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Leslie Nielsen bearing Ted Danson up to his neck. Yeah. Good great. times indeed. So that gets us into the book itself. As I mentioned, there's a couple of interesting pieces in his final argument Some of it, I think, is new. So we have King saying the slow death of the beams. Like, I'm not sure if it's actually been stated that the beams themselves are dying. I don't know if that's been as explicit as King makes it. The fact that Walter, the man in black, is half human Mm -hmm. struck my eye as, okay, half human and half what? Yeah. Or if he's half whatever, how is he also half human? I don't know if that's intentional or not. The fact that Balazar was the person who drove the car that hit and killed Jake
0: in New York, I don't think that that was ever revealed up until this final no. argument, and I don't even know that it's necessary to be the case, but I think king's he's finding like connections inside connections at this point, and yeah like, oh, that'll be cool let's let's say it was Balazar who ran down Jake and then
1: confirmation that Fannin is Flag is Martin Broadcloak, just all spelled out there, but not necessarily Walter, I don't think depending on how you read that. But definitely Fan and Flag and Martin Broadcloak are all one and the same person. Yes. Pretty good final argument. You know, we we mentioned in the book four point five how well King did at summarizing the world. I think he did another pretty good job of hitting on the major points of what had happened thus far in the story. Although I can't imagine someone picking up book five and saying, okay, here's where I'm going to start with the Dark Tower. But I suppose it's a good reminder because there was quite a bit of a lag between book four and book five.
0: Yeah, not quite as long as between three and four, but it was a, a good number of years. I couldn't help but as as interesting and even additive as this final argument was, because we just read 4.5, it feels like he left a bunch of interesting and important things out. Like, hey, didn't you know that you were going to... I know it doesn't make any sense, but in, in the, the chronological order of the story... Some interesting, perhaps important things that he's not talking about happened just before we stepped yes. right into this this point in the
1: story. So I know usually we discuss these books in terms of giant themes that cross over the the section that we've read, but in this case, because there's a lot of table setting here, Jay, we decided to go almost chapter by chapter. So we're going to start off with Runt, the prologue section. What are your initial?
0: Initial thoughts on Roont. First of all, I love the word. I like saying it. I think it's cool. Uh, there are a lot of things about it that, you know, what it means are sad, and it brings to mind the tragic end of a life that could have been. In terms of, like many other of the mid-world isms that we hear, like stuffy guy and, and things like that, "runt" is, it's more guttural and vulgar. It's a single syllable. You know, it's like it's taken ruined in our, the way we would say it in in English and turns it into this single, harder, more, kind of more gross sound. It's almost like a slur or a curse. Yeah. Yeah. But I think by doing that, it cuts to the heart of the meaning of the word much more directly. It's more powerful and maybe more accurate to say that somebody is ruined rather than ruined. And it almost like saying like, oh, yeah, the the wolves took him and then he came back ruined. It's like you're trying to paint a rosy picture over a tragic thing. Right. But no, he came back ruined and he was never the same. You know something bad happened. Yep. For that, I appreciate and admire King's twisting of our regular language into something very specific to this world and making a better word for it in the process. Yeah this
1: section introduces pretty much a classic Western trope, you know, after trying out all these different genres elsewhere in the series, King's just like, Nope, I'm giving you the classic Western trope of something bad's going to happen to this town. There's a bunch of regular everyday salt of the earth people, and there's going to be some bad guys coming in and doing some bad stuff and they want to deal with it. And there's one guy courageous enough to say, yeah, we we need to do something about it. I'd like to raise arms to do it, but if not, Let's get an outside gunslinger to help solve the problem. And it's just sort of set up perfectly like any Clint Eastwood, John
0: Wayne, Western that you might see. Yeah. And a key point to those plot structures is that the otherwise defenseless townsfolk have to have some sort of calendar to when the threat will arrive. It can't be somebody, some bunch of marauders suddenly showing up and you know, then there's there's no chance. But when they know the next time the moon is full. The bad guys are going to be here like clockwork. Then there's time to set up and do the 18 montage and <laughs> turn the, the hay bale or into a watermelon cannon or something like that and <laughs> defeat the bad guys. Then, you know, so it has to work that way. That That's what we saw in Seven Samurai. That's what we saw in Magnificent Seven. That's what we see in, I don't know.
1: Blazing Saddles is a good example. Blazing
0: Saddles, yes. But you need to know they're coming before they get there. Yes. So they have time to enlist the help of warriors who can be on their side. Yep. It's familiar
1: enough, but we know what it's coming. and we are I mean, I feel like this is cool. I'm going to see a showdown, and it's going to be between Roland and his fellow gunslingers and the Wolves of the Kala. And I'm not sure what the Wolves of the Kala are, but they sound sort of badass because everyone's scared of them. And they bring back people who are ruined, that's right, and as in most of these Western tropes, what do we have? We have the all the townspeople getting together in the town hall to have a meeting and discuss all this, and these characters fall into the groups that you expect them to. you know there's the regular guy whose family's been impacted, and he doesn't want to see his kids hurt, and then there's the rich farmers who are doing well off, and they're like, "Hey, let's just maintain the status quo and then there's the sideline people who just stay quiet and want want to see which way the wind blows. But there is one interesting character who makes an appearance here,
0: and that's Father Callahan. Yeah, Father Callahan in the flesh. Character we haven't seen in a Stephen King story since the end of Salem's Lot, right? It's been almost, in our lives, 40-some years now. But yep.
1: in terms of when he was writing this book, 30-some years, yeah, I, I was not expecting there to be a crossover between Salem's Lot, of all things, and The Dark Tower. But here we have it, Father Callahan, and I'm interested to see where
0: this is going to lead. And this has interesting implications too. The fact that up until now, we've seen that this Randall Flagg figure, perhaps because of his half-human status and certainly because of the magic he has access to, he can go between worlds and cause mischief everywhere he goes. It's made pretty clear that he can exist in these other stories but I think he's the only one who's done that. As far as we know. You know, we've had people from other worlds come to Roland's world, and Roland's gone to some of those other worlds too in the flesh, but we've never had somebody from another world besides Flagg come into Roland's world. So now it's like, oh, this just kind of opened a floodgate perhaps. Like, it's not just people like Randall Flagg with, With magic, like somehow Father Callahan went from another Stephen King novel that is apparently unrelated and shows up in Roland's world, right? And he's been there a while now. Yes. So, how did that happen? Why did that happen? And could this happen with other people? I don't know. I don't know. Moderately fascinating. I would
1: love to see if we get like a a super team of Carrie, Father
0: Callahan, the Firestarter. I was just going to say the Firestarter girl, whose name I can't think of right now.
1: Drew Barrymore and <laughs> uh, Danny Torrance to all come together and form a psychic super team that will help Roland defeat whatever he needs to defeat.
0: Yeah, that'd be pretty amazing cotet to assemble. Stephen King Extended Universe, make it happen. Oh, and one thing that, like you said a moment ago, that we don't know what the heck these... These wolves are that everybody's so afraid of. We get a pretty detailed description of some of their attributes, but it's mostly presented as possibilities. Hmm. That's how it reads to me. Like maybe they're not men. Maybe they're vampires. Maybe they're taheen Maybe they're warriors of the scarlet eye. Or maybe they're all of those things somehow. But those are all things that we've heard of or cross paths with along the way here and there kind of some of them is sort of like legendary or something that roland mentioned like oh yeah i once like hung a knot man right you know like he's just telling some campfire story to jake in book one but this kind of makes it feel like all of those things are more real yes although possibilities yeah the possibilities and and like what's we heard about the, or learned about Taheen in book one as well. Like right before Roland met Brown, he said he saw a Taheen in the desert and sort of like, hmm, interesting. Yes. These things are just all over the place, apparently. There's a lot of potential about what these wolves are all about. Like their their physical attributes and their perhaps abilities. Right. <laughs> are they really vampires? You know, that. what does that mean? I don't know, but it
1: would- with Father Callahan around as somebody who fought vampires in Salem's Lot, that might be a that would jump to the top of my list. So when Tien mentions the wolves at first, I at first thought they were just some sort of gang of marauders, like you had mentioned. But yeah, once we get these descriptions, it starts thinking, oh, there might be more to this than just a bunch of black hats who are coming into town.
0: Right. So another thing that we learn is that at least from the perspective of the townsfolk of the Kala. That Gilead is known to them, but they also know that it has been dust in the wind for a thousand years. That, like, kind of puts sort of like a a fixed amount of time between when Roland, who grew up in Gilead, that before it had fallen, and today when he's about to meet the people of the Kala. A thousand years have gone by. How the heck did that happen? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And they even say time is softening, and Roland has said similar things along the way. But does that mean that Roland is a thousand years old? You know, we've had hints here and there that that he's far older than he ought to be, but I don't think he's experienced a thousand years of time in his life. I feel like the calendar has just kind of skipped ahead and skipped ahead on him for various reasons that have to do with magic and walking through magic doors and Right. Knights on the Golgotha and things like that. He's more like a Buck Rogers man out of time,
1: right? Gil Gerard yeah. is forty something, but he goes four hundred years into the future and becomes Buck Rogers of the twenty first century. That's right. Beity beity beady beady be.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's something that's gonna come into play later or if it's even accurate or how we get to a thousand years. Right. If time is so flexible, how does anybody even know that a thousand years have gone by?
1: Yeah, people in this town don't even have they can't even do the math to figure out when some of these kids have been the last time the wolves came and took kids, right? They're having a hard time. Yeah. Was it 24 years ago or was 25? I can't quite
0: remember. Yeah, it's in like it's an easily decipherable number of generations that this began. Yes. But at the same time it feels like it's always been this way.
1: So our next section is The Face on the Water and this is a shorter chapter that really just introduces us back to Roland and Eddie and Oi and Jake and Susanna. And the passage that stuck out for me is when they're talking about the different types of stories that exist, and Roland likens it to story flavors. He's like, in your world, do stories only have one flavor at a time? And Susanna says, yeah, basically, people like their genres to be their genres. And Roland says, oh, we like stew. We like to mix them all together. Yeah. Does no one eat stew? This really pairs up nicely with what we've been talking about now for 30-some episodes on this podcast about how King likes to mix genres here. and That's not something that's usually done.
0: Right. This is King hanging a lantern on the very fact that he enjoys mixing genres, especially in the Dark Tower books. This is a stew of genre. And he's always, with each passing book, he seems like he's adding another ingredient and another ingredient. And to his credit, the stew keeps tasting better for it. Yep. Eventually you think, well, there's just one too many ingredients and now it just tastes bad. But I think that he manages to blend them in a very delicate and balanced way, but he makes it work. And I also see this as a predictor for the structure and the genres that he uses in Wind Through the Keyhole, a book that I don't know when He personally started to envision that story or what would become that story if it had its earliest imaginings while he was writing these books, or if it did happen many, many years later when shortly before he finished that manuscript. But there's a lot there. It's like he wanted to, if he could have put the brakes on the overarching plot for the Dark Tower series as we know it, and explored storytelling some more, gone on to try a few more genres and i think he didn't have that freedom he was still getting past his accident he was still trying to figure out how to get to the end of this story and i think he made the choice to get to the end and see what happens and then come back but maybe if he could have done it over again and knew how it was gonna go he would have written went through the keyhole before he finished this potentially yeah and
1: it's interesting that this interaction between Roland and the others comes within pages of the rune section in which we get that classic Western trope, but we didn't mention the fact that how they find out about the wolves coming is that an android is the one who walks up to them and tells them, <laughs> oh, by the way, so we get this science fiction piece right in the middle of this classic Western story. Am I in Westworld or am I in something else? Like what's going on here? There's like a an android of sorts just telling people, oh yeah, the wolves are on their way.
0: And that's what gives them the clockwork knowledge of the bad guy schedule. Because a clockwork man or a clockwork humanoid machine comes over and says, "Bad guys are coming," and this this is when they're going to arrive. It works perfectly in the context of the Dark Tower because we've already established that things like this exist. In fact, there was mention of a human-shaped or or a, or an android, something like Andy, in Book Four when. We had that one omniscient narrator moment with the deer that gets ripped to shreds with the passing of Blaine that Blaine also goes past this deserted town and the only thing left that is moving is an android that has accidentally walked into the corner of a room and can't figure out how to turn around and it's actually dug a trench for itself under its feet because it keeps taking half a step half a step half a step bumping its head on the wall and as pathetic and terrible as that fate of that, that Android is, I can't help but assume that that was a, a, an exact copy of Andy that we meet in the call up. Right. And it seems like they're all named Andy. You know, very original. It's an Android. What should we call it? Uh, Andy? Andy? <laughs> <laughs> if somebody said, hey, it's a robot. What should we call it? I don't know. Robbie? <laughs> uh, King was on Painkillers at the time. I'm sure he he wasn't worried about naming Andy. So this whole chapter really
1: reintroduces us to all these characters and just gives us a sense of, hey, they're still on their way to the tower and and here's where they're at. And as you noted, it's good to have Eddie back.
0: Um, We
1: we mentioned this in book 4.5, but knowing that that book was written way after the piece, like if you're coming straight from book 4 to book 5, this is really the first time you've seen some of these characters in in a while where they're
0: getting sort of a full – in a meaningful way, we knew that Eddie and Susanna and Jake and Oi were with Roland, but all of book four, they're basically just listening to him tell a story. And then again, in all of book 4.5, they are just listening to him tell a story. And we meet so many other interesting characters and go on these interesting adventures with Susan Delgado and we go to Magus and the whole that whole thing is great. But Eddie's not in that. Susanna's not in that. Jake and Oi are not in that. So, we went a whole book and then we went a whole another book without those characters being real characters for us. So, now after just a few pages of Eddie cracking lies and saying things like, stick that in your Takuro spirit and drive it. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's so good to have Eddie back. I missed him. (laughs) Yeah. So, it's good to just be back on this, I guess, main plot and back with our main characters and letting them have their adventure again, because they're not stuck in a storm and passing the time. And they're not, I don't know, stuck on some endless night where Roland is telling the story of his being entranced by the wizard's rainbow and being obsessed with the tower. Yep. And in fact, this chapter ends
1: with Eddie and Oi and Jake going on their own adventure as they go dash yeah. which seems to be some sort of mystical movement between worlds. We'll see in in chapter three that Roland wakes up and sort of sees their bodies flickering in and out of existence, and he realizes immediately they've gone toe toe-ash. Like, this is something that he's learned about back in his training, back in the day. And that moves us into the New York Groove section, where Eddie and Jake end up back in New York City, along with Oi, on the very day that... Jake found the rose on the day he skipped school and went into that mm-hmm. vacant lot and found the rose and got the book the joke book and the Charlie the Choo-Choo book and they actually see the other Jake walking through town. And what's happening here Jay? Like what's the point of this chapter other than
0: getting them back in that world? Where where are we going with this? Well, this is where we go to Dark Tower the Phantom Menace and we have a whole chapter about trade deals and estate contracts. <laughs> Good times. It's good times. Way to George Lucas it up there, King. This is King introducing this concept of toadash where which I assume is going to become really important. And just like all the way back in book one, he's in the way station and he goes down into the basement and he hears the voice of the jawbone speaking to him. He doesn't panic. He doesn't back away. He knows what's going on. He has been trained. He's been taught how to deal with things like this and again with the speaking ring and the demons he knows how to deal with these things and apparently conveniently perhaps he knows all about Todash it's something that he was taught but also something that he was told to him as a maybe it's sort of tall tale as well because nobody had ever witnessed it right so very handily Roland sees this happening and goes oh yeah Todash you know like <laughs> Totally that's what that is. I got more important things to do right now but oh yeah.
1: Toddash even more impressively Eddie and Jake don't seem totally freaked out by it. Like at first they're like wow, we're back in New York. This is sort of cool. This is where we yeah. want to be. But I think at first Eddie thinks it might be a dream and that he's hallucinating, but he realizes that no it's much too real and he sees Jake and they they're actually sharing this experience so it's not just a dream. Boys there with them. They're all in this experience, and it freaks them out a little bit. things seem different, right, so yeah, it
0: feels like New York, but the lights aren't right, like it's darker than it maybe should be, like they're experiencing a projection of the day instead of the actual day, and people seem to be somewhat aware of their presence. they can't see them, but they
1: avoid them and walk around them mm-hmm. It's this odd virtual experience that that they're in and it doesn't freak them out as much as it might have freaked me out if i jumped back into another world but hey they, they go with it and they immediately deduce that there's a reason that they're there and they think that the reason that they're there is to see the rose and that sort of makes sense like that's back on that original day that's what really drove jake right yep he got the books but as we saw the books really didn't make a difference when they got to Blaine, like it didn't help. But that was the the information that Jake really saw, thought was important because he has his vision of the tower, et cetera. So they think, okay, well, we'll just follow Jake 77 through this day and see where it goes. But then Eddie says, you know what? Maybe we should stick around here because they see Balazar come into the bookstore. Mm-hmm. And that's when they get the whole trade deals and real estate contracts, which seems like it's going to be important. But- Really, I just sort of read over it fairly quickly because I wasn't quite getting it. I understand what's happening, the lots in the possession of Calvin Tower, blah, 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 and it's important, and there seems to be some sort of argument over it and money involved, and then they
0: toe-dash back into Midworld, and i have sort of like, okay, I'm sure when it becomes important, I'll come up again. The slightly cynical perspective on this is that this is King doing a really good job of and in a really interesting way, retconning Jake's story through New York, so that whatever is to come next in the plot has a reason to happen. He's saying, there's a whole bunch of information that Jake didn't see that has to do with Calvin Tower and Balazar and old Double Ugly. Suddenly, they are very important and interact in a way that they never would have or should have or needed to in the earlier books. But now, apparently they do. That's very cynical. But I I say that just to applaud King again. He could have done this in a much lazier fashion. He could have done this in a much less effective fashion. But this just feels like it's actually organic to the story. That this is how this world works. There are ways to travel between worlds. There are ways to experience the same day, but from a slightly different angle. It's like switching from camera one to camera two. And now, oh, camera two is pointing at the Balazar nonsense. And look at all this extra information we're getting. Right, That information wouldn't be there if it it was useless. So we just have to proceed with it
1: from now. So we get more connections within connections like you mentioned before. And it seems like any character who's been named thus far might show up at some point and and might be important to the story. So let's keep our eyes on that. Now, what I found was the most interesting part of this chapter was that there are some slight changes in the day itself. So in addition to them noticing that it doesn't quite seem right from a light perspective and how New York feels and smells, one of the things that Jake's notice is that the signs in the bookstore are, are slightly different. Mm-hmm. And the first thing he notices is that the sign that had been advertising John D. McDonald mysteries is now advertising books by an author from Maine named Stephen King. Which, whoa, what? Wait a minute, what? So Stephen King, so we're now in a world of a fictional book in which the author Stephen King exists. Yep. That's not a mistake. I'm sure that's intentional. What that means, we don't know. But the fact that in the previous chapter, we were introduced to Father Callahan, who is a character created by Stephen King for a book called Salem's Lot. And then in this chapter... We have books written by Stephen King. Starts to blow your mind a little bit.
0: Yeah. What if right next to Charlie the Choo Choo, there was a copy of Salem's Lot? Yeah. Could be. And The Stand. like, How much does this corkscrew into itself? I'm sure we'll find out. So the
1: other interesting thing is that the Charlie the Choo Choo book is no longer written by Beryl Evans, but is now by Claudia E. Inez Bachman, who, as all good Stephen King fans know... Bachman is a pseudonym for Stephen King, much like Beryl Evans, I suppose, is a pseudonym for Stephen King as well. (laughs) Interesting change. I'm sure something is going to come of this, but I have no idea what and what King's getting at here. But the fact that last chapter he was talking about story flavors and stories within stories, and we've got characters from his other books, it's starting to mean something, I think.
0: Yes. I think the light touch that King was exploring in books one through four about interconnected things that touched the Dark Tower story or that the Dark Tower story touched outside of it. Now I think he's just said, you know what, I'm just going to put the pedal to the metal and everything is not just tangentially connected, but directly connected. Yes. This marks that shift. I think leading up to writing book five, King decided or maybe came to the realization, everything that he'd been writing up to this point Kind of has to do with the Dark Tower. So he's fully embracing it here. As you said in the publication history earlier, he wrote Hearts in Atlantis, or published it at least before this book. Hearts in Atlantis has one passage in it, the titular story of the book, that is completely a Dark Tower story. And in fact, I would recommend any Dark Tower fan, if you're making your way through this series, for the first time, that before you go beyond book five, that you read Hearts in Atlantis. I don't think it's necessary to understand what's going on, but it is so directly a Dark Tower story, it could have just been Dark Tower colon Hearts in Atlantis. Mm. It's that direct. It's not like how The Stand had characters with familiar initials. This talks about the tower and characters that are connected to the tower.
1: So, as Eddie and Jake are looking over these real estate contracts, they fade back into Midworld and we move on into the Mia chapter. And the Mia chapter starts, interestingly enough, with a character named Mia who we haven't seen before. And it's told from her perspective, but we quickly find out that Mia is, in fact, another identity of Susanna, mm-hmm. which, as we've talked about previously, Susanna has not been a character that we felt has been dealt with in the best of ways thus far. We don't think that she's been given enough page time within the stories, that she might not be as fully developed as she could have been, and that the disassociative identity disorder has really not been resolved in such a way. Like we're told at the end of book two that Odetta and Detta have been merged to create a third person, Susanna. But as we've seen in the book since then, at times, it's not really Susanna embodies those two personalities and is her own person, but mm-hmm. Deda comes forward in some occasion and is actually Deda and not Susanna, but really sort of imposing her personality on the situation. And we've thought that that was potentially a flaw in the books, and it might still be a flaw in the books. Or yeah. if you think of it in a good way, hey, King really was setting this up that, hey, maybe
0: Susanna is not as integrated as we think that she should be. I agree with what you're saying. like. I've always been disappointed by the lack of proper merging of the Detta and Odetta characters because I've always taken it on faith that the magic of the door and Roland's force of will and the very specific circumstances of being able to actually be inside a person's mind and understand and see what they see and think what they think. That is an opportunity to actually work some psychological repair and to help her truly close that rift to actually become no longer Odetta, no longer Detta, but this new third identity that encompasses and incorporates elements of both of those identities. But from that moment forward is a new person and that's all. But as you just said, Every time things got tough, Detta came out. Every time something gentle needed to happen, Odetta came out. But it was always Susanna to Deda, Susanna to Deda. It, and it was almost like Susanna didn't really exist. It was just Detta and Odetta, but now they're just aware of each other. Right. Susanna, the name, replaced Odetta, and we just got Deda anytime we needed a really tough person or somebody who could you know, do the dirty work of the moment. Yep. And I thought that was a cheat. I thought it was a cop-out. And I was always frustrated by King's choice or perhaps lack of realization that he was missing the point here. It did come in awfully handy for him, though, all these years later (laughs) to say, oh, I've left the door open just a, a bit and I can insert a whole new personality. Great. Perfect. Let's do that. And this new personality is
1: named Mia or names herself Mia or has the name Mia, which in the high speech is mother. And it's interesting that there are a lot of thoughts that part of what causes dissociative identity disorder is times of trauma. And being pregnant with a baby in another world and not knowing what's going to happen to you might be a time of trauma. And to take the name Mia, which means mother, in high speech, sort of comes together as, hey, maybe this works out so King's does done a nice job of setting this up in such a way that makes sense,
0: mm-hmm. and what
1: we see this Mia doing is really very very, very creepy, so I am mm-hmm. not one who normally visualizes what I'm reading. I tend to just read it and i'm not I don't have a very good visual imagination, I would say so but when I got to this piece of Mia tearing off her clothes and moving through the swamp like an alligator and tearing apart these animals and just sort of eating them like, an uh, apex predator. It mm-hmm. really creeped me out and I could just sort of see how it was happening and Roland observing it from a distance and from a stealth and, and just seeing this beautiful creature And she does seem to be like a creature at this point. I'm not trying to dehumanize her, but he says, like, she doesn't look like herself anymore, but she's still beautiful, grabbing at frogs and smushing them so that their eggs pop out and devouring them and grabbing rats real quickly and just, like,
0: grabbing mosquitoes out of the sky. It's just, I could visualize it and picture it, and I was creeped out. King has painted a very vivid picture, much more so than he typically does. And I think that's why it may have had that effect on you. I I don't think you suffer from a lack of imagination. I think that maybe just, I suspect you imagine just enough to understand what's happening in the scene and then continue. Whereas when King goes out of his way to provide so much visual detail because he feels it's important that you really see through Roland's eyes and understand what is happening here, that you couldn't help but be completely transfixed by what he was describing. And it was one of the more, in some ways, disturbing things that he's, he's put on the page. It's a character we care about, and it's a character who we don't want to go down this path and behave in these ways and eat something that could make her sick. I wouldn't eat a raw frog. I've eaten frog, but I wouldn't just like squish one and stick it in my mouth and go like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I'd be afraid of getting sick from that, and I probably would. And here she is, like throwing them in like by the bunch. Everything there is wrong. The way she's behaving, the fact that this is another manifested identity, the fact that she seems to be even more dangerous than Detta ever was, and there's even that moment where Roland is using. All of his stealth and all of his guile and all of his skills as a tracker to keep up with her and not get noticed by her because he wants to keep her safe, but he's afraid if he gives himself away, she'll come after him. She'll turn her deadly attention on him and he doesn't want to put her in that position. And he thinks he's getting away with it, but little does he know, she's been aware of him since like the get-go because she really is. This is all of the innate gunslinger traits that Susanna slash Odetta slash Detta and now slash Mia have always had and have been developing and honing and refining for months now. So this is the most dangerous incarnation of that person that Roland has witnessed or has met. The way she's like pulling these gnats out of the air, like they're standing still, and then eating them one by one, it's like, uh, you, know, you don't want to get in the crosshairs of that person. And he's in a pretty dangerous spot because he thinks he's getting away with it, but he's yep. not. And he realizes that
1: the reason she's doing this is because she's literally eating for two now. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that maybe the second one she's eating for is not a normal human baby that Susanna and Eddie produced but in fact that it might be some sort of demon baby. Because of their time in the speaking ring and pulling Jake through. Really, the one thing that you don't want to do and which makes Roland scared is get in between a mother and her child. And so I think he's worried about that, but he's also worried that he's not going to have an ally in Eddie because he knows how Eddie is and Eddie is stubborn and Eddie is defiant and Eddie is in love with Susanna mm-hmm. and even Roland realizes, even if I show him this and show Eddie what's happening, he's going to deny it and say, there's a reason for it and everything's okay. And he doesn't want to create a wedge between himself and Eddie as well. So I think Roland is in a tricky situation by the end of this chapter because he needs to protect his quartet. He needs to protect Susanna. He needs to protect Eddie.
0: But there's danger lurking here on a couple different fronts. But I will say that this is probably a prelude to a change in King's attention and devotion to the character of Susanna. The next book has her name in the title. right? Whether he's doing it consciously, finally giving this character her due, or it just happens to go in line with his overall plot, either way, we're going to have a lot more time with... Susanna on the page and I think that's a good thing
1: we've gone through all the prologue in the first three chapters we can see there's a lot of table setting here there's a lot that's going to happen I would imagine it's going to come to a head pretty soon but we've got our townspeople in trouble story we've got the what's going on back in in earth and the toad that Eddie and Jake went on We've got Susanna and this new character of Mia and Roland's trying to balance it all together. Luckily, he's happy to see that Eddie and Jake made it back from the Ash in one piece. So that's one yep. less problem he has to worry about. Looking forward to our next section, which will be fun stuff. And we can get away from this creepy image of a, <laughs> a woman eating frogs, live frogs, and, and get into some fun stuff.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: why don't you kick us off with fun stuff, Sean? I have one of my most fun stuff of all the fun stuffs that we've ever fun stuffed.
0: (laughs) Yeah, lay it on me.
1: So this fifth book of the Dark Tower starts without our main characters and is instead focused on Tien. And we get a whole section of Tien, and this has been unusual because the first four books, and even the first four and a half books, it's all been about our quartet and these characters, and it's almost 90% of the time been through Roland's eyes, and all of a sudden we get this fairly robust section with none of our quartet and instead we have Tian. and it reminded me that in the fifth season of the TV show The Americans I was also confused because that show, which is primarily told through the eyes of the main characters the fifth season of The Americans starts out without our main characters but is instead focused on Tuan, another <laughs> young character and it just sort of freaked me out because I'm like where, where am I? Am I in the right book? Am I on the right TV show?
0: Is Rowling going to be fighting communists in this book? You never know, but that's fantastic. Fifth book, Tian, Fifth season, Tuan. Great.
1: That's a weird, weird piece, but with all the connections and connections that we talked about earlier in this episode, maybe there's a, maybe the Americans is Dark Tower adjacent and we're just not
0: aware of it yet. Yeah. Maybe one of the characters has the initials RF and I hadn't picked up on that. In the same vein that I was thinking how great it was to have Eddie back in the story, I really liked when he told Jake that his only real talent is being a jerk. <laughs> I know that's not true, but at the same time, it's kind of true. <laughs> it is kind of true. <laughs> he has a lot of other talents, but maybe his strongest one is being a jerk. <laughs> the self-awareness is brilliant.
1: So when Eddie and Jake are dash. And they're in Tower's bookstore. Eventually, Tower leads Balazar and the other gangsters into his back room, his stock room of the, of the store. The bad guys sort of sense that something's going on. Like As we alluded to earlier, even though they're not there, Jake and Eddie's presence can be somewhat felt. And Tower says, no, 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 that's just Sergio, the cat. And I wondered if King was making a subtle reference to uh, Sergio Leone as a Spaghetti Western enthusiast. and it wouldn't seem unlikely that that's who Sergio is named after.
0: I agree. I missed that detail, but once you pointed it out, I I figured there couldn't be any other reason for that. My favorite line of this section of the book, though, was when Callahan was in the town meeting hall, and he kind of confronts the townsfolk and tells them that they're chicken shit, and they need to stand up for what they believe in and fight back. Somebody starts talking about something that he doesn't like, and he says, Bag it! save it for Sunday. (laughs) I just laughed out loud at that because I thought that was so Catholic of him. (laughs) (laughs) The priest is telling somebody, just worry about such things on Sunday. Yep, That's how we Catholics roll. That's a good padre for you. Yep.
1: So my last thing, and we maybe touched on this briefly, is that the wind through the keyhole causes a little bit of weird inconsistencies. As they talk, the quartet mentions fairy tales and Roland needs an explanation of it. And they try to explain what a fairy tale is to him when the very easiest thing to do would be to say, hey, remember yesterday that story you told us, the wind in the keyhole (laughs) through the keyhole? That's a fairy tale. But yeah, I suppose that he can't retcon that entirely. So we'll have some, maybe a couple of those weird inconsistencies between uh, with the addition of 4.5 and hopefully that'll be the only one. Roland's fairy tale was
0: a stew of genres though.
1: It was very much so. I think that gives credence to your thought that maybe King had some of that in mind. And if he had the page count or he, if he didn't think that it would detract from the rest of the story, maybe he would have put that in. And rather than giving us that 300 page went through the keyhole story, he just had that two or three page interlude where they talk about storytelling and what stories are like and story flavors. So Mm -hmm. a way of touching on it without getting, turning this into a thousand page book. Okay, well, Jay, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. Thank you. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at two at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at Two Guys You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com/ twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com/groups/ two And if you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 5 of the Dark Tower, The Wolves of the Kala. We'll be finishing off Part 1, Chapters 4 through 7. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening.